Welcome back to What's on Your Mind. I'm Dr. Gene Bresson. And I'm Dr. Steve Schlossman. And we're child psychiatrists at the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Here's what we'll talk about today. Today we're going to be talking about the Child Homelessness Initiative at Lesley University. This is the second podcast we've had on this incredible initiative. The first one focused on the curriculum. And now we want to bring in the director of the Child Homelessness Initiative and one of uh, one of their students. Steve? Yeah, this is really cool. So we don't often have the opportunity to bring in guests who are just so directly um, kind of at ground zero of, of this issue. So I want to introduce the two of you and then let you guys – let you guys talk. So we have um, with us Jade Gardner, who is a freshman at Leslie University. She's majoring in expressive arts therapy um, and holistic therapy. Did I get that right, Jade? Holistic psychology. Holistic yeah. psychology. I'm sorry. Um, and is also um, enrolled or already took the course on, on child homelessness and, and has herself a very interesting story about why she chose this. And we also are very privileged to have um, Professor uh, Lisa Fiore, who is the director of the Child Homelessness Initiative, as, as Jean just said. And we're going to hear kind of from both sides of that on the teaching side and the learning side. So why don't we start with you, Jade? Um, what is your story? Like, how'd you get involved in this or why'd you choose this? I um Well, when I came to Leslie, I initially joined in the child homelessness class because um, I wanted to more holistically understand on like a psychological and experiential level with terms and with the actual concepts and ideas, what it means to be homeless for a youth. And um, I found the, throughout taking the course that I, I once have, was homeless in my childhood and I w- was able to, through the course, see the things that I felt I experienced, but I felt didn't negatively affect me. And I was able to, or am able to use this information in interacting with my siblings and seeing how they have been affected by the same circumstances that I've been affected by. So. (laughs) Well, you've been homeless. Um, How did your own life experience affect your kind of studying about homelessness and other and other people i mean i oh it was funny when i began the course i didn't actually realize that i had been homeless before i more so my little sister uh her name is autumn she's a couple years younger than me and she is still filtering through foster homes and adoptive homes and so i took the course initially to better understand her and then kind of realized that I also have been homeless and that the experiences that other homeless people have had were also the experiences that I had. I just didn't so much, I wasn't so much affected by them for some reason. And um, with my little sister, like I, in going through it, I was very cognizant of her and what she was probably experiencing and, and how isolated she must have felt. So that was really what I was focusing on as I went through the course, was trying to view it through the lens of my little sister's experience. Wow, so you were you were drawn to it both as a function of your own experience and your little sister's, but it was really almost a kind of denial, like, like, like I hate to use that shrinky term, I'm sorry, but the, the, the idea that you had been there too, but you didn't even realize that. I just, I wonder, I wonder if that's common. Like among the the people who take the class who've been in similar circumstances, and I guess that's a question for both of you. I ended up um, 
in the class you have to write like a final paper or whatever on what you your lens through uh, child homelessness and I wrote mine about resilience because as I went through the course both my experience and my little sister's experience were so prevalent in in what I was learning and I couldn't understand why we went through the same experiences and my little sister is so affected by it and you know she has like depression and you know those kinds of very very easily attainable things through such experiences and I find that I have for whatever reason just more resilience and I think that going through and thinking about what it means to be resilient throughout the course and trying to figure out what the difference was between me and my sister and and why I felt like I needed to be there for her and it it really struck me because resilience seems to come from nowhere and it seems to just be an inherent thing within random people for no reason at all. And I think that in going through the course, those are the people who will have that experience that I had where they've had the experiences but they don't know why they're not experiencing the repercussions that people would traditionally experience. So so Lisa, let me ask you as 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 the professor and as one of the you know leaders in this in this program and, and an expert in resilience, right? And yeah. so um, I imagine, and what I what I gather one of the one of the uh, motivations for this course is to help uh, prospective teachers or professionals who are going to be working with with homeless kids and 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 parents to understand the range of problems that they have and why one is resilient and why another one might not be. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on some of the kind of direction that you wanted the students to take when they when they when they study under you and under your faculty? Sure. Um, when we're learning together, you know, as we're doing our different work, I think a lot of the mission. It's going to sound a little corny, but the mission uh, at Leslie University has a very strong social justice component, and what that means to different people, you know, is is every individual's experience, I suppose. But that's a mission that's woven or an element of our mission that's woven into a lot of what we do and resonates with a lot of people. So I think one of the goals for this initiative as an overarching effort, I suppose, is to help inform and educate people who work with other human beings about other human beings. And so as Jade is sharing her memories and ideas, whether you name and experience something or you know ex- live an experience in a way that doesn't have a label until you stumble upon it or someone places it on you, I think all of us can benefit from being in better awareness about our own relationships and human contact. So for me, whether I think it would be very interesting to look at relationships whether or even resilience. That's another thing. I mean, we can talk about that too. But thinking about it through different lenses. And when you're in an institution of higher education, you've got economists and historians and artists and education folks who don't necessarily focus on one topic. So I think this is an opportunity for us to examine homelessness and particularly child homelessness through these different lenses and really learn together, but also bring awareness to a topic. It doesn't even feel right to call it a topic, but to experiences that we have so many assumptions about and biases about. And I think Jay just made it quite clear that living an experience doesn't always feel the same as it reads in a book. It is a interesting commentary on our times where we worry that saying social justice sounds corny. But but we do. We worry about that. So let's just make sure we define it because I, I think Jean and I are both very much – and it's hard to not be in favor of social justice. Mm-hmm. We are, we're in favor of it. How are we defining it here? What do you, what do you mean? Oh, gosh. Oh, and so this is you know coming through 
my own lens. But when I think about social justice, I think about uh, treating people as, you know, having these inherent human rights. And when we see instances that these human rights are not honored, respected, yeah. honored, visible, cherished, you know, nurtured, then that's a problem. And so whether it's related to big themes like race, class, gender, sexual orientation, I mean, we can make a list a, a mile long, then, you know, that's that's a problem. So I think helping to eradicate visible problems, ones that we can easily detect, that's one angle on it, but then bringing awareness to ones that we can't always easily name and, you know, are, feel clumsy about engaging in uh, discussions or other conversations. Well, it's, just, it's just so important, you know, because Gene and I, we both had our eyes opened in that first podcast and also just in meeting with, with folks over at, at Leslie. And then I did all this reading as to Gene. The term trauma comes up all the time, like it's ubiquitous in, in a way that um, there's even this whole trauma-centered therapy, which you guys probably know more about than I do in terms of the approach to, to kids who've been homeless, that you actually can't go into the circumstance without at least taking into consideration the possibility that trauma took place. But Jade, as you very you know, aptly point out, not everybody's traumatized. Um, so it's an interesting dilemma, like how we sort of tease out and how we ask about that. Is, what are your thoughts about that? Well, um, it's actually, it's interesting that trauma, trauma is such a hot word and, when it comes to this kind of a topic. And um, my little sister recently went through like this, this thing where her, she she was going through a lot and her new adoptive mom wasn't understanding it because her new adoptive mom wants her to be a carbon copy of who she is. And what my little sister was experiencing was the realization that she has PTSD from her experiences. And, um, she, like she was taken to a hospital and her, her adoptive mom just thought that she had all of these things wrong with her and was just postulating all of these like bipolar and depression and, uh, you know, all these. And it was, it was so funny to me that she couldn't see that obviously she would have PTSD from the the experiences that we've had. But um, it's also, it's really important to recognize that it's inherent that somebody is susceptible to that kind of an experience to take away from that kind of an experience. But it's also, it's not necessarily true. That's what's so tricky about studying child homelessness is that everything is just plausible when you're talking about the experience of someone who is homeless as a child. They are developing so many things about themselves in so many ways through their experience of homelessness. And there is such a high level of maturity and growth that needs to take place. And so a lot of times there's trauma that isn't seen until the child has grown up enough where they can be their own support and they can let their own guard down and then they can see what they experienced. And um, trauma within that can be so deeply embedded that you don't even know it's there until it's been years. It's a, you know, I'm sorry, go ahead, Gene. Well, I was just I, I was I was going to just ask Lisa. You know, given that it's often in, invisible, perhaps to some people, what do you try to do to help your students learn to identify trauma? I mean, they're not they're not necessarily clinicians, but how how do you help them understand the context of trauma, how to identify it? You know, for those that are going to be teachers working with parents, for example, you know, how, how do you how do you help them uh, see and, and how do you help them communicate with the parents or with the kids themselves about what they're going through? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's I sort of chuckle at the your comments, Steve, about trauma, because 
schools for many children nowadays feel like traumatic experiences. Sitting through an ordinary day in a public school for many is experienced as traumatic. And I would argue the teachers probably, well, I know, they feel it too yeah. um, because of all the pressures and mandates, et cetera. So that's a whole other podcast. But um, I think, you know, and I'm not a clinician. I have um, a developmental and educational psychology background. So in a classroom, you know, what's what you see, you know, in front of you. So teachers are often, when we talk about social-emotional learning or we're talking about behavior issues or classroom management is often how these um, subjects are in an educational context. Teachers wonder about how children's behavior will manifest itself. And so the incident, you know, the trauma itself, well, I know for certain teachers are not trained in recognizing trauma and responding to trauma. You know, this is that's what a clinician does, a medical professional or a social worker would respond to. So teachers are sort of in a tough position when many students are experiencing real trauma at home and what that means is different for everybody. So it's an interesting question, Jean, what we're trying to do. I've been myself looking on Twitter a lot, looking at these social media groups that help me a lot get a better understanding of what different organizations are doing and what the statistics are, which are staggering and state by state by state, the different efforts that are um, being engaged in and so forth. And so I really, I think it's raising awareness. So when you see a student who looks like X, you know, it could be a whole bunch of things. It could be that he or she's hungry. It could be, you know, real trauma. I mean, we don't know. And, and to Jade's point, maybe it's something that happened five years ago that all of a sudden is coming up for the child because something triggered a, a memory of some kind or recognizing, I think I might have um, mentioned this in a different context, but when a teacher asks a child or the classroom to, you know, let's bring something from home and the child's thinking, but what does that mean? I don't have a home. I'm, you know, hope, hoping I have a roof over my head tonight. And that that's hard. So again, I think it gets to raising awareness and truly helping to recognize each child's potential, which, you know, if we have a, a standardized template for what that looks like that takes you down one path but if we try to look at children holistically as individuals then that can take you down a very different path so that's i think the social justice piece too that i feel in the work at leslie but the teachers would know that a child is homeless right i mean not always no, not i don't always. think that's a well, given they, they wouldn't I mean, know I, that either i i used to teach high school and um it's interesting like uh, just a brief anecdote so i taught high school i taught at a private school i didn't have a teaching degree so um so you know as one of those kids graduate college go and teach at a private independent school this is in northern california most of the kids there were very well off but they had a few kids who were full scholarships and they would come from this is out in san francisco they would come across the um, richmond bridge and we didn't know we weren't the the administration knew but we weren't told and there were three kids who literally had no home were going home with this immense amount of work to do and didn't even know where they were going to go that night. It was an interesting moment because the the students had mixed feelings about knowing this. Like they weren't sure. This, this was at a high school level, so they were able to sort of think in more nuanced ways than than maybe younger kids could. But I don't I don't think it's a given that teachers are and, aware. And so and so, given that fact, Lisa, do you help the prospective teachers or individuals who are going to be working with kids who who may or may not be homeless? to kind of ask the right kind of questions, to take an inventory about their living situation, their family situation, because teachers typically don't do that. I mean, I remember, I don't remember teachers ever asking me, like, 
what's home like or where's home? You know, I don't remember them asking me about my family, you know. Uh, so is that the kind of thing that you really want to do to help increase the awareness and then and then sort help help sort that out? I think, well, I remember the days of home visits when your teacher would come to your house and sit and have tea or something. And it was always this really exciting moment to have your teacher in your house. It was, you know what I picture? I picture jello with fruit floating in it <laughs> my mom somehow knew how to produce those jello molds and and they were ready there for mrs mccartney wherever happened to come over for those things exactly um, and you know so that doesn't happen very much anymore i mean perhaps if you're in a small enough setting and you know families are open to that but i think there's a lot of shame and and privacy you know restrictions and regulations that you know not even relating to one's home per se but relating to many other health issues or who knows that you don't there's such a fear that people will be labeled and then the biases and assumptions that go along with that and so I think, you know, for me, a big thing is always relationships. So family engagement is always a perennial struggle for teachers. How do we get families more engaged? People's work schedules don't help you sometimes, and people often don't want to participate or can't for various reasons. So as I feel like, and this gets to a resilience piece too, if you can strike a trusting relationship or help create that with families, caregivers, you know, of young children and, and youth, that's a huge step. So regardless of what field you work in, I think that's a critical skill to help nurture. Exactly. So Jade, did did your teachers know? That's a that's an interesting question. I remember there was um a big stigma from my family just in communicating with my teachers because when you allow teachers to know that kind of a thing, then there is also a, a certain level of responsibility that a teacher has and if a teacher would find out I used to move every year we would buy a house and then we would lose it and I would move every year and um if I knew that like I moved school districts a lot so teachers at least knew that I was like an unstably housed person but I I remember for a period living in a motel and like taking like the short bus to school and I, I know that the kids who were in the in the playground when you got dropped off would you know make fun of me for oh the short bus like a bus. van be- not the one that everybody else gets off of is, is that what you mean uh, no just a bus that's shorter just just a shorter bus it's a smaller bus but was that like a no, I'm just sort of thinking here because I remember thinking these kids are arriving in the shorter bus when I was growing up there must be something different yeah and I think that was the extent that people knew that I was homeless. When I was in um, the fifth grade, I talked to a guidance counselor for the first time about it. And within two weeks, the foster care system took all of my siblings out of the house. And I remember feeling very responsible for a long time as if I had ruined something and I had betrayed someone. And like it, there was definitely a very big gap and a very big like family versus the system. And I think that when you're in a familial setting where you're all juggling the same struggles you very much bond inward and you're afraid to look outward for help because so often it is it is just you know the kids get taken away or the mom gets the kids because the dad's probably the bad one or you know those kinds of things so I know that my teachers didn't know until I finally said something and then it wasn't long before something happened. But then, but the, you you felt responsible both for your family, but you also felt responsible for the teacher. That was a huge burden on you. 
Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and, and how did you cope with that? I think that for a long time, I just felt really guilty, like I had done something wrong. And I, it took me a long time to realize that even if we all didn't end up in better houses as a result of that, we would all be better people someday as a result of what we had. Hints your resilience. Yes. <laughs> so so we're, as, as we wind down here, this is really interesting. We're going to continue this conversation as well. If you could, if you could like wave a magic wand and create, this is like one of those dumb questions, but but like he had one policy change you could make, and, and this may not be possible, but what comes to mind? Like I'll ask each of you, uh, Lisa. Gosh, I mean, at the most basic level, and it's funny because I feel like this is really what I'm going to say, but more housing. I mean, it's just that's not that's not silly at all. That's not silly I guess, at all. But I, you know, that takes so much to make happen. But I, I think you know, there's so many other things, you know. Healthcare and and food, but you know housing that would it help all starts with well. well Mayor, Mayor yeah. Walsh, Mayor Walsh made that a, a priority to increase housing and and decrease you know homelessness, make affordable housing available. And, and Jade, what about you? Well, um, on on the line of increasing housing, I know that a lot of um, uh, all of my siblings and I'm one of four. We've all experienced foster homes that have been significantly worse and more psychologically traumatic than the the home that I grew up in. And um, I feel that because there are so few homes, there are a lot of people becoming foster parents that should not become foster parents because the states will take whoever they can get who passes a background check. And as a result of that, I feel like we need a different way to house these children because they need to be there for each other and they need to know that they're not isolated and they need to be in an experience where they're not feeling that they can't let go and just trust in the people that they're with and there should not be that stigma of like I'm afraid to talk to my teacher I'm afraid to talk to a social worker I'm afraid because something bad will happen and I think that maybe just just on a basic level being more open and encouraging kids to talk without there needing to be some kind of action and you know just like more of a more of a safe space for kids who need a therapist or an expressive arts therapist or just a friend or someone their own age who's going through something that they're going through more of a an emphasis on connecting those people so, so i gotta ask you did you i always do this did you see pet hotel the movie pet Hotel? <laughs> i didn't <laughs> like two siblings stuck in foster care it's awful the parents just aren't so good at it the foster parents and so they go and live in an abandoned building where they take in pets that are homeless and so there's you know an obvious kind of metaphor at work here but it's also a kind of delightful movie for the school age crowd that was one of the first ones i've seen that really dealt in an honest and straightforward way with um with the foster system well thank you both of you um if, if anybody out there listening has got questions or ideas please do just uh, send us a note you can listen to this podcast uh, read the blog uh Write us a question. We'll make sure we get it to the right folks. I'm Steve Schlossman. I'm Gene Bereson. Thanks a lot, everybody. <laughs>